Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Today I'm joined by our economics editor Chris Giles to look at the risks the coronavirus epidemic poses to the global economy. News stories about the spread of the virus often focus on the human cost, quite rightly, but there's also a growing economic cost in terms of the disruption to trade, supply chains, tourism and transport. So what is the risk that this will push the global economy into recession? And can the actions of central bankers and policymakers help avoid this? Chris, let's start with the damage. What are the sectors of the global economy that are worst affected and how big is the damage so far? Well, I think you've mentioned the big ones. Tourism damaged very substantially in the areas where the outbreak is quite severe. So Italy, China, parts of a lot of Asia. We're seeing huge falls in tourist numbers. And that then has a knock-on effect straight away to airlines in particular, but other transport, hotels, leisure facilities, all of these sorts of companies are often small companies, particularly when you're getting down to hotels, restaurants, and other leisure activities. So we're still in the part of this crisis where we don't really have any hard economic data, but we can expect some very, very large impacts, which we expect to be temporary. We've got some surveys, so the PMI from China was dreadful, was the biggest drop even than the financial crisis in history. In February, Chinese car sales were down 90%. That is not a normal number for any part of the economy. Because if you have a lockdown, lots of things simply won't happen. So those are the sectors, the ones that you mentioned, supply chains. We at first thought a lot of this would come out into manufacturing, where plants would shut down because essentially they couldn't get parts. And that is all happening. We don't know exactly how serious it is, because it's quite hard to pull this together. But we know that in China, it's all very serious. You can see that from the pollution data. The upside is that there's a lot less pollution, but that also means there's a lot less activity going on. And that is now spreading out around the world. Everyone thought it was going to be a reasonable sort of year in terms of economic growth. The US-China trade tensions have calmed down. Everyone thought things were going to be pretty hunky-dory, if unspectacular. How vulnerable is the global economy Because the epidemiologists are so uncertain about how far the virus would spread, the economists started off by predicting very small total global economic impacts, but those are growing pretty much by the day, and we're now seeing pretty large effects. I mean, I think the OECDs is the best forecast for the global economy we've had so far, and they say that if it stays pretty limited, so limited essentially to China and parts of Southeast Asia, then the knock-on effect on the global economy would be to take off half a percent in 2020, half a percentage point off growth. So 2.4, not 2.9%. But if it spreads much further, then the 2.9 could easily halve and go to 1.5 or so. So that's where we roughly are. And I think that is a reasonable forecast range at the moment. But it's easy to get, you know, if this spreads much further, then we're going to hit contraction territory for the global economy. And I think one thing you need to remember is 1.5% or even 2.4% for the global economy does really put us in the zone where you can talk about a global recession because it is in the 10% smallest levels of growth in any sort of reasonable historical period. And so if it's in that sort of bottom tenth of 
economic performance, then we are talking really about a global recession. And 2.5% of growth is the cutoff point where the IMF likes to talk about recession. Does this crisis hit us at a weak spot? How damaging do you think it will be in terms of corporate debt levels and government debt levels? Is it catching us at a time when the world is really quite indebted? Yes, I think this is one of the worries as where the second round affects. So if we have a short and sharp downturn, then we get over the coronavirus problem and things get back to normal. Well, then, yes, you can knock some activity off 2020 growth and it's not the end of the world and it doesn't have particularly lasting knock-on effects. This is your classic V-shaped recession, sharp down, followed by sharp up once the crisis past not that much harm done everyone's lost a bit of money but you know you can make a lot of it up where that gets more worrying is if it then spreads into something more insidious and more longer lasting such that companies and we've had lots of worries in the global economy and if you don't have to read too many imf global financial stability reports to know that there are concerns about the levels of corporate debt in the world you read more of them than others i might venture I read quite a lot of them, and they don't change. Since the financial crisis a decade ago, companies have loaded themselves up with even more debt, and there are pockets of vulnerability, and those pockets of vulnerability, if they are then hit by a short cash flow problem, that can turn a short cash flow problem into something massively more serious. So this is why we're seeing lots of central banks, policymakers, all trying to make sure that banks don't foreclose, that there's forbearance of debt and that we don't have this sort of second round where a short-term problem turns into something more serious. But I think we're seeing with things like, you know, it's a small case globally, but in the UK on Thursday, we see that Flybe, a small regional air carrier, which was in trouble anyway, well, that's gone under because it's the straw that broke the camel's back. And I think you'll see that with other companies as we move into this crisis, particularly if it begins to last a long time, that companies where banks were pretty worried about their finances anyway, well, this will be the last straw. Mm. So let's look a bit more at what policymakers are doing. The US Federal Reserve came out with a half a percentage point emergency rate cut. Will others follow suit? And Why haven't we already seen them do this together? Well, I think this is really interesting. It's partly because they're pretty much out of ammo. So central banks outside the Fed have got interest rates either at zero, below zero in the European case or the Japanese case, or very close to zero in the UK case. And it's just much harder to get coordination where you don't have a lot of monetary space. And you know, in the European world, there's a lot of debate about what exactly is right. And so these things can't be done immediately like they were in October 2008, where there was a pretty much a half point cut around the world on the 8th of October. Remember, that didn't save the world then because Lehman happened a week later, but it was seen as a very forceful moment. This was much more of a damp squib because there was a G7 call. There appears to have been quite a bit of coordination between central banks beforehand, but actually, in the end, they couldn't agree a coordinated policy action It doesn't seem that the Fed's decision to go and cut its main policy rate was actually communicated on that call. So lots of people didn't know in terms of in finance ministries of what was just about to happen. 
And so instead, we got a very bland G7 statement saying that governments and central banks would take all appropriate actions. And we then got what looked like an uncoordinated Fed cut a few hours later. And it all felt a little bit of a mess. And that's how markets interpreted it. So instead of galvanizing markets and making them feel that the authorities had a grip on the situation and were going to come out with a sort of shock and awe tactics, uh, instead it felt all a little bit uncoordinated and panicky. Opinions very divided as well on what kind of impact this assistance from central banks can have. You know, there are some sort of old timers with almost a kind of gut instinct to oppose zero interest rates or extremely low interest rates or negative interest rates who just think this is a waste of time, it's going to do more harm than good. And then there's another school of thought that says, well, they may as well have got ahead of the problem. What harm does it do? It may as well try and stop stress in financial conditions before they start. How's that debate shaping up for you? Well, I think it's, it's one of those debates where you can take a very textbook view and say, is this a supply shock or is this a demand shock? And central banks cannot respond to supply shocks. And you saw some central bankers last week saying exactly that. And then you have to get into the real world and say, well, we don't really know. It's a bit of both. You know, clearly, nobody thinks that lower interest rates will reopen schools when governments have insisted and forced them by law to shut down. But what they can do is they can bolster confidence and they can attempt to mean that these supply shock issues where things are just not allowed to happen don't then morph into people all running for the hills and not spending at all creating even further problems. So it's really an attempt to affect the second round not the first round of this crisis. We know there's going to be economic harm caused by the coronavirus but you don't want it to turn a really rather important and nasty health and economic problem into a self-sustaining crisis that feeds off itself. And that is where policy is really trying to intervene. And this is why you're also seeing a lot of suggested action to help banks forbear loans, to stop companies that have sudden drops in their incomes going bankrupt, all of that sort of stuff. That is temporary and targeted, and then we're going to see a lot more policy in that space, I would have thought. So something targeted at the day-to-day needs of smaller companies. Yes, and then we might, if this gets more serious, and it might, then we might well start to see big fiscal actions because, again, you know, there's the temporary stuff to stop bankruptcies and to stop people who are suffering temporary problems. But if this means everyone panics and no one spends at all, then you have a big confidence crisis and you'll have a self-sustaining and potentially vicious circle. And that's where you might need government to step in as essentially the spender of last resort to keep activity going. And that's where we're not in that stage yet. But this depends entirely on both the epidemiology, how quickly and how extensively the virus spreads, And also on behavioural response, how do people respond to this and do they all tighten their belts simultaneously, which we know from economics is if they do, then we have a much bigger problem. But we just don't know we're there yet. One other interesting wrinkle from all this is the issue of whether the Fed has jumped in specifically to calm market volatility and the kind of moral hazard that some people think this spits out. So every time the markets have a wobble, the central banks are there. And is that healthy? I mean, how much do you think market volatility in and of itself is an input into central bank decisions? 
Well, if you look at what central banks have done, it does appear to be maybe more than you would like, because you absolutely don't want moral hazard to rule the roost. You don't want people to think, well, we can take any risk we like, because in the end, if we make a big mistake and do something silly, the Fed will come to the rescue or other central banks. Now, the Fed's not in any way unaware of this problem and is fully aware, but it has a difficult trade-off. Does it do nothing, even though it knows that maybe interest rate reductions might help alleviate an economic problem because it doesn't want to give markets the impression that it's there as a permanent backstop? Or do you take action, again, knowing that this might give the impression that the Fed is going to try and rectify any problems that exist in markets every time? And, you know, it's just very difficult. And I think the Fed, they understand this problem and they will have felt actually the the economic situation is serious enough that it had to take action. I think the Fed would be horrified if it got itself into a position where it always had to put a break on any market falls. So in a sense, they've got no good options. They may as well do the one thing that they think might help. Yes, and I think that's exactly what they did. And that's what they said they did. I don't think you need to second guess this. They felt their action on rates was important, was necessary, could help, not so much for markets. And it didn't help markets. Markets fell on the day it happened, but might help for the wider economy, both for companies that were stressed and for households and encouraging people to spend. But they're not superheroes, as central bankers are quite keen to point out. And their tools aren't as powerful as they sometimes think. Yes, we think monetary policy does work in stimulating spending, but it often doesn't work quickly. And so these are tools that they should use and have learned to use quite effectively. But no one should think that this means that there won't be a recession if the forces of both the virus and human behaviour means that people want to stop spending, then we are definitively going into a recession. Well, thanks, Chris, and thanks for listening. Remember, if you missed our previous episodes on Donald Trump's influence over the US judiciary, India's big brother state, or the role of Antarctica in regulating the oceans, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.